Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. It is Friday the 30th of the 10th. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary. Fine, wonderful, fantastic, great. I've got good news for you, Michael, to start with. Yeah? All of the last podcasts have been really, really just good news central. I think we're shifting to a more uplifting form of news broadcast. Well, I think ultimately it was always going to happen. It's basically a reflection of our personalities, isn't it? I mean, there have been some small hiccups, like in the last podcast when we talked about those people being burned alive during the firebombing of Dresden. But other than that, I think it was pretty uplifting overall. Yeah, the people... Who jumped in the river to yeah. escape the fire and then the river boiled. And yeah, yeah. Or the people with the skin falling off them because they, as it basically melted, yeah. All, yeah, other than that. But that mean that the citizens of Dresden were technically broiled? Mmm, broiled or roasted? I don't know. You'd have to ask the RAF for that kind of stuff. They probably have the more detailed technical definitions. It's the sort of information that Butcher Harris masturbated to. That's an image you want in your head. So, yes, Tuesday. The nation's long nightmare is over. Not this nation, of course, America. But no, we no. all speak the same <laughs> language and we all speak the same news and God knows uh, oh, we're no. basically the same place now. Uh, no, our nightmare is going to go on a lot longer than that. Yes, it will all come... What? Actually, that's not true, is it? I was going to say it's all going to come to an end Tuesday night, but... We... I mean, it may well do. We may know the result within two hours of the whole thing closing. They may call Florida, bang, slippy-doo, the way you go. There's also a perfectly good chance that we'll be we'll be here wishing people a Merry Christmas and saying, well, and the uh, American presidential election is, as we speak, going to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think from what we've seen from the court, there's not... Some of the states are going to continue counting after the uh, election closes. I think you're going to see up to a potential three days on that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it could be Friday. I'm hoping for the uh, the mythical 269-269 scenario. That would be good. That would be I, don't, good. I don't think it's the most likely to happen, but I frankly have absolutely no idea what will happen. And I think it's the outcome we deserve as people. I mean, we as a, as a species. Yes, yeah, as, as a species, it's what we deserve. Mm-hmm. Well... It's the old philosophical proposition is that if anything can happen, then if you're given an infinite amount of time, then it eventually will happen. Now, we haven't had an infinite amount of time yet, obviously, since the foundation of the United States and its first presidential election. But, you know, eventually it will happen. The interesting thing about, as I said, I have no idea what will happen in the election. The polling is suggesting a strong Biden win. Yes. For the most part, there's been one or two who are using proprietary methods and are saying, actually, it's a lot closer to Trump. But I wouldn't be surprised to see anything from total blowout to Biden to total blowout to Trump. And it's really weird, because if you look at the the, the fundamentals, what are considered the fundamentals of, of questions, like, are you better off now than you were last year or that you were before Trump took office? Massive amounts of people saying yes. A lot of the questions that should see him win in a landslide are yeses. Yeah, yeah. The only one that's not is, are you happy with the direction America is going? Where, he, I mean, you're looking at like 80 to 90% saying no. But you're also asking that during a pretty unprecedented global pandemic. So it's hard to know what you can actually draw from that. But it's not being reflected in the polls. We're not seeing any movement in the polls. So I don't know. It just seems like Trump is such a singular candidate 
then he could have absolutely everything going from him, for him, and if the polls are correct, still lose. He can have absolutely everything going for him except the fact that he's Donald Trump. Now, if we look at the numbers that we've seen, and we again, with all the caveats and the pinches of salt that you want, one of the things that seems to be happening is that he seems to be going to outperform uh, pretty well every Republican candidate since... Oh God, Richard Nixon. Uh, when or where, since I'm, I mean Richard Nixon in 1960 rather than 1968, on uh, votes from the black community and from uh, Hispanics. In fact, on the basis of the polling, any other candidate who had the numbers that he's showing for blacks and Hispanics would be basically on the on the way to a a, a blowout. But he's doing disastrously badly with women well particularly with white women and white educated women and white suburban women they just i think that's a lot of that seems to be the pandemic and the his, the, the perception that of how he has handled or mishandled the pandemic the, 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 like we were talking earlier the, he had a meeting in the white house today with um god the name escapes me i keep wanting to say can you but it's not kind lil wayne Little Wayne, yes. Uh, who came up and said all sorts of very nice things about... No, Little Wayne has said nice things about Donald Trump before this. And Trump has had a number of meetings. One of the areas that particularly that has been has come up is the reform of the criminal justice system. And the steps that he Trump is, is taking towards the reform of the penal system. Really interesting, progressive stuff that Nancy DeVos has been doing with the schools. Highest... I mean, the employment... The current state of the levels of employment amongst uh, black men is the best it's been in years. I mean, almost possibly in some ways since records began. Um, increase in wealth also in black and Hispanic communities. Yeah, he is. He's polling quite highly amongst young black and Hispanic men. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, terribly for women. But that's not new. I mean, it's new somewhat to the scale it's in. But I don't know if you've ever seen the election map of what would have happened if only men or women had voted in the last hundred years of election. And if only men had voted in the last... America would have been a Republican country uh, forever. I think that's since... I I don't know for sure, but I think if that's since the 30s. I I have a notion in my head that in the 20s women were... still more conservative than men certainly in in britain in britain in the british vote that women were still more conservative than men in in the 20s um and the couple of a, lot, a couple of wins that the tories had back then were responsible were mostly women voters uh it's interesting even even on the basis of the, of the hillary vote like hillary got 96 percent of black women uh of confirmed voters in the exit polls anyway but uh, only got 81% of black men. The, the, the point about this to, is rather is not about the, the outcome of this election because, like you, I mean, I have absolutely no clue. I, I can't see a Trump blowout, but I can see it going from a solid Trump win all the way over to uh, a Biden landslide. I, anything in between I think is possible. But if Trump has made a breakthrough with black and hispanic voters particularly younger black and hispanic men if he if he can get those 
if you can get a per four or five six percent up on those that's a, okay for this election it won't be enough but it would be finally the evidence that what people republicans and others have been talking about for more than a generation the possibility that that monolithic black democrat vote is starting to fray and that vote is starting to become more available to a republican candidate that actually speaks to it and to be fair to trump trump has deliberately gone out and spoken to that vote the democrats need the whole coalition to work together they need women they need minorities they need the urban vote they need uh, pretty women graduates they, all of, the, the, all of the, the traditional, what they call the, 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 the coalition, traditional democratic coalition, has to cohere for them to win at, at a federal level. Now, if it does, they can produce stonking good results. But if that starts to break down at all, particularly if it breaks down in the right places, in the right states, then the electoral map become, suddenly could become far more hostile for them in the future than it has been looking. I mean, Democrats have been talking about this demographic shift in the United States for a long time now that eventually is going to transform everything and mean that democrats just win all the time texas is going to go purple and then turkey is going to go from purple it's going to go blue and once texas goes blue well then it's impossible for republicans to win a federal election we'll see donald he may lose this election but he may have also started something the other thing i was i was, I was, I was saying off air was trump has actually done some really interesting stuff i mean What's the body? Is it is? It's not the Federalist. Is the one that does a? They score presidents on policy initiatives and implementation, and they do this with every president. And Trump has scored higher than any Republican in recent memory. I think he actually scored higher than uh, Reagan. Yeah, he did. So whatever Trump himself may believe, or whatever his convictions may bear, what he actually does, what he produces, has been very solid. And the thing is, you have to suspect that if you got, having got elected, if Trump had some, and I know this is stupid because like he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't be Trump if you, if you, if you weren't Trump. If he had managed in some sense to slight, in some way, transform himself into being less Trump and was a, diff, a slightly different candidate, but running on his record, chances are he'd be a shoe in Yeah, I, I think the problem with Trump is, is the aesthetics of Trump. So there are many things he's very good at because he's fairly unique as politicians go. But it's also made him uniquely bad and uniquely polarizing at certain other things. But it does showcase that a politician with some of Trump's abilities and willingness to say certain things, but in a more refined way and with a better presentation, or a less polarizing presentation, yeah. could be very much a threat to the Democrats. Now the next, the, the Republicans, are, it'll be interesting to see how the Republicans respond if Trump loses. Well, will they will they go back and to some kind of safe space where they basically try and find another Mitt Romney? No, nothing against Mitt Romney, but... Well, I, I mean, the thing is, if you look at from a policy perspective, the Trump administration has been very good to the Republicans, particularly in well, both in domestic policy and in a lot of international policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're containing Iran to a degree that four years ago, five years ago, would have been simply unthinkable. They uh, have no new engagements, no new wars at least, for a president, which must be a nice change of pace for them. You've got three Supreme Court judges. You've got hundreds upon hundreds of federal judges. 
I think if the Republicans, if Biden wins and they lose the Senate, yes. I think they'll react very differently than if Biden wins and they keep the Senate. Because they keep the Senate, they're going to absolutely castrate Biden. Yeah, they'll, they'll make him just utterly ineffectual. Actually, on the, on, the, on the foreign policy issue, I think that's another interesting one, in that this is something that potentially Trump may have changed, at least for the medium term, who knows, for the long term, the, the natural disposition of the, of, of the Republican Party. And I think in a way which will be more electorally successful, and I think also better for the world, Trump is in a sense an anti-war candidate. He's an anti-war politician. He doesn't want to go to war. He doesn't want to get involved in outside entanglements. It's the joy of isolationism. It's pretty great for not getting into a war. And yet, at the same time, he's not afraid of confrontation. So he does confrontation, but he doesn't do war. And I think that, I don't think it's an accident that some of the most dedicated, vitriolic anti-Trumpers are also the neocons, who tend to be the most gung-ho for military intervention. Now, if he moves the Republican Party in that direction, that kind of non-interventionist, we'd say non-interventionist rather than isolationist position, I think that that has to be a big plus. The Iraq war was, an, and the, the effects of the, the, the Iraq war after the second Bush administration, that was a nightmare for the Republicans. And was a big problem for the for, for Labour in a sense in in, in Britain with uh, the association of Blair personally, although they managed to I think successfully a little bit more associated personally with Blair rather than the party. But that's again another another potential medium to long term change for the party, which would be a positive for them. So even if Trump is only a one term president, as you say, three justices on the Supreme Court, hundreds of federal judges. A change or a break in the direction of the party as being this naturally interventionist, militaristic party. And, and breaking down or chipping away at that minorities wall that the Democrats have been trying to build up into their solid coalition. You know, while there are many people out there who are, you know, and why wouldn't they be? We know the composition of the media in the United States, mostly, and here painting a very gloomy picture for the prospects for the Republicans in the short term. I think that, that Trump has created as many problems for the Democrats as he has as supposedly created for the Republican establishment. I mean, the thing I, I think is most interesting about Trump, and um, which I think you can explain some of their growth in um, amongst black and Hispanic and other minority communities, is that Trump seems in many ways to be causing the death of fusionism. If the listener isn't aware, it was effectively the combination of uh, what would now be considered the economic right, the more libertarian, free trade perspective with social conservatives mm -hmm. in the Republican Party. That's yeah. a, a relatively, I mean, that's a post-Goldwater movement. That's a, that's a Reagan, that fundamentally Reagan appeals. On one side, it's the fiscal conservatives, people, and Dave Stockton, uh, the Milton Friedman dudes, and then his ability to appeal to the traditionally socially conservative blue collar workers in places like Michigan and Michigan and Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And that's what Reagan did so successfully. And that was that coalition. And that was a coalition that went through basically George Bush one and then George Bush two. And yeah, you're right. 
that that's breaking down and now it's much more uh it's bifurcated and he's gone more for that that speaking to the social conservatives but not yeah about about more about values issues but as much about americana and what it is to give this positive image of the united states to these people that they can participate a certain optimism which reagan was very good at also which is strange because i, I in many ways it, it doesn't seem to be working across most of the western world the the gap seemed to be growing not just in america but in other places as well and you're starting to see this this realignment of the parties where the right-wing parties in many cases are becoming the parties of the working class yes because the left parties are becoming much more metropolitan they're becoming much more educated they're moving much more towards social issues and the interesting thing there in america is that the white activists of the democratic party are substantially more extreme on racial and social issues than the minorities they claim to represent i uh, yeah i mean that's that comes out again and again when people do parallel polling on on the on the issues and say issues regarding race or whatever that white democratic activists who tend to be upper middle class and educated to a graduate or postgraduate level tend to be far more to the left far more progressive on these issues than the average black voter and in fact now this has been true for a long time gary and people have been waiting for it to have impact maybe now we're starting to see it but it's been true for a long time that the average black voter is more conservative the average black democratic voter shall we say is more conservative than the average black white voter and one of the reasons perhaps is just a bit demographic there are very large populations black populations all across the south still and the south is more culturally conservative even the Democrats. So, I mean, if you're a if you're a, a successful African American politician in somewhere like Tennessee, like your cultural profile is going to be radically different to the profile of, say, an African American politician in New York. Now, if you look at the American the caucus, the African American caucus in the United, in the in the Congress, it's left wing. It's very radical, but it's far more radical than their voters are. I, I think for the electoral success of the Republican Party, it's probably a good thing. And to be honest, for the electoral success of most right-wing parties across the Western world, because fiscal conservatism, for all that I am in that space myself, doesn't have the votes. It's never had the votes. It's had the money, traditionally. But it's generally been the social conservatives who have supplied the votes and have done most of the canvassing. And when you look at the breakdowns of where people are on different views, the amount of socially conservative left-wing voters is quite large. They yeah. tend to be poorer, they tend to be working class, they tend to have lower standards of education, but there are a great deal of them. In Ireland, I think it's about 33% of the country would fall into that authoritarian left category. Yes. In America, it's the same. So I think the... the the, the clearest example of this is close to home here. If you look at the way, the, if you look at Boris Johnson's victory in the United Kingdom in the last general election, it's absolutely written clear. Now, I know Brexit kind of confuses the picture, but in a sense, Brexit both confuses and crystallizes the shift that's been happening. Now, you're, there's a, an economic historian called Steve 
Davis who works with the uh, the IAA, isn't it? Steve is yes. the IAA, the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a, a right centre right uh, free market think tank in, in London. He's been talking about he's talking and predicting this shift for a long time, and it's come to what you see that they go up. That what has happened is the, that traditional Labour votes in the Midlands, in the North East, the North West, uh, and in in Wales, I would say you can say collapses, but very large drops in it because you're talking about people for whom this new face of labour, this which is increasingly in the southeast, it's increasingly more interested in cultural progressive issues, is deeply uncomfortable with any kind of nationalism or patriotism, any kind of oh, St George England flag waving kind of thing. They don't feel comfortable in that space at all and what is, it has become clear is it is much easier for the Conservatives to move left on economics and stay socially conservative than it is for the left to move to the right on social issues. They, that's something that just at the moment doesn't look like it's... Now, we'll, certainly that was true under, under Corbyn in, in, in Britain. Whether it's Starmer may be able to pull off something there. Well, Corbyn is uh, dead now. Yeah, well, the news today I thought was inc was incredible when you see the uh, the report on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, the recommendation, I think essentially that Corbyn should be, is, shall we say, invited to leave the party? Well, Corbyn has been removed from the party. Yeah, uh, that's dramatic stuff. The leader of the, the, leader of the, of the opposition removed because of uh, a problem of endemic anti-Semitism within, within a particular party in Europe at this this time, it's bizarre. But we we have always known that those that there are voters in the north of England. We know, for example, demographically that that this is very often where, this is the place where that you have towns where a lot of young men and young women these days end up going into the armed services. For example, they have a strong connection with the armed services. They're very positive towards them. They feel positive. They have a, a positive local identity, so as Yorkshiremen or Lancashire women, but also as being English and as being British. And that wasn't being fed. That wasn't being spoken to by the by the progressive left. And the Tories have managed to get now. How stable that coalition is, a lot. We'll, we'll see. A lot of that will depend on how the Tories manage to deal with the issues, the economic issues. The Johnson administration does not seem terribly effective at things. Yeah, but again, it's a bit like it's just the question, you know, for the Trumps, you know, are we, are we going the right direction? It's it's a good job this the election has hap happened when it did, because they will have, we hope they will have time. In that, I mean, hope for them, but rather that the pandemic will have receded and there will be an opportunity for ordinary politics and ordinary behaviour to start to work again. And then we'll see how their, uh, how their, with what, how their abilities turn out to be regarding tackling the, the social and economic issues affecting these areas of historical industrial decline in the north of England. Actually, as we're, we, we were kind of in the area of the UK as these things go, The Economist. The Economist came out there and uh, yeah. I think their headline is Why It Has to Be Joe Biden. Mm. But there was a story I just wanted to inform the listener of because they may have not hear it because I, it's only as far as I know being reported in the Washington Free Beacon and nowhere outside that I haven't seen anywhere outside America mention this and it's about The Economist 
which for those who don't know is a uh, newspaper slash magazine. They get prissy if you call them the wrong thing. Oh yeah, they're a newspaper that looks like a magazine, shall we say. It's got staples in it, so that makes it a magazine, but you know, they call themselves a newspaper. It used to be quite good for analysis, and over the last 20 years, it's pretty consistently degraded in quality. Yeah, it's sad. It actually is quite sad. It used to be very good, uh, particularly its letter pages. But The Economist also has a uh, another company that effectively works as their consulting division. I think it is an entirely separate company. I don't think it's, it's under The Economist banner. And it turns out that that company has been accepting large amounts of money from Huawei, the Chinese communications firm. And it was doing this whilst The Economist was also defending Huawei. So they had their consulting division publishing these reports on the positive impact that Huawei could have in certain areas, some of which Huawei themselves say uh, influenced public policy in Britain, while also writing about them in detail quite positively. Not, Not totally positively, but quite positively. Now, when we're talking about Huawei, we should just for the for clarity, it's the the particular business that is of interest is not the fact it's not their handsets, the the very fine, low cost smartphones that they make, but rather, but their five G network, which they have been rolling out around the world and in Europe, and has become something of a a perce- There's been a perception of it that it may actually be a security issue and its connections with the kind the Chinese Communist Party, so on and so forth. The Swedes, did the Swedes drop out? The Swedes, I think, did they do something to decide that they weren't going to use it? So the Economist's Intelligence Unit, which is what their consulting division is called, it looks like they published at least seven reports from Huawei and advised Huawei on how best to uh, deal with British politicians, on how best to deal with PR issues, because... Huawei has had, shall we say, some bad PR over the years. Yeah. And at no point did they disclose that they had a significant financial relationship with Huawei while publicly covering Huawei in a very positive fashion. They were arguing against, what do they call it, um, techno-nationalism. Yeah, yeah. Arguing that attempting to uh, stop Huawei from moving into Britain for fear of cyber espionage was uh, techno-nationalism, shouldn't be allowed, not the answer. So, uh, yeah, that's one of the most uh, prestigious newspapers in the world, kneecapping itself. Yeah, it's unfortunate. No, you know, if Huawei wanted, for example, as uh, an act of outreach and good faith to, to sponsor us, or indeed just me, with some of its top-of-the-range smartphones, you know, I, I'd be very perfectly willing to uh, to consider that, you know, if they're listening, just in case. I think they had a, a sponsored piece in the Irish Times there the other day. You know, if they're getting sponsored pieces in the Irish Times, why can't they get a sponsored piece here? I mean, we'd take the money, we'd do it. We'd take the, and the phones. I mean, it's better we have the money than someone else. Absolutely. We're nice people, we deserve it. It's it's a bit sad because I mean this just the Economist used to be part of my daily life. Uh, the excitement when he would come into my letterbox downstairs in my own apartment building on Fridays. I think it was it would arrive, and it was always a, a rattling good read. But just it's it's just transformed itself into this odd 
international cosmopolitan predictable thing. That was the great thing about it. It was unpredictable. It's also, I think, the quality of their analysis is just nowhere near where it used to be. They're yeah. much more open to opinion. And the problem is that that's gotten to the point where opinion has started to override the facts, even on things I have no ideological position on. I think they're just degraded. I was hoping for a while that like foreign policy did kind of the same thing for a while, but then they pulled it back together and they became pretty decent again. Yeah. The Economist just... It fell, and it's been falling consistently since about the 90s at this point. But I think the number of people buying it is going up, and that's been going up for a long time as well. So, you know, if you're Pearson, I think it's Pearson Holdings on The Economist, uh, then you're happy. I think there is sales figures. Like, it's always good to make more money in general. But there are certain things where once you cross a certain level of sales you should really start to question how you are doing that. Like there are certain products that because of what they are, have limited markets because they're either complicated or they're time consuming or they're just of niche interests. Yeah. And what The Economist used to be, the level of analysis in it, was quite a niche interest. Like I have a subscription to Stratfor, which is a strategic intelligence group, which does some really good global stuff. Uh, it's it's if you're interested in geopolitics or just foreign affairs, it's really well worth doing, but it's expensive, and I would imagine, like there's a cap on how many people are willing to take that up. Sure. And I think the Economist used to be that, and now it's much more of a mass market commodity. But I think they've gotten there by basically reducing the quality. Yeah, I my own pet theory is that one of the things is they made the decision sometime, I think probably in the in the late nineties that they were they were going to. Sh- change their kind their profile in in the market away from being a british newspaper to being an international newspaper it there was an awful lot more coverage it seemed to me anyway of american stuff less stuff less work less reporting on europe certainly less on the british and it it lost that particularity that actually made it interesting that's sense of coming from a slightly different viewpoint that's you know coming at a slightly different angle which produced interesting insights now it's just it's just another one of those international things where lots of very clever people sit around and have very clever conversations but it's just not that interesting now you say that and I, i've met a number of people who've written for the economist i would split them into two groups there are the older people who write for the economist who tend to be quite knowledgeable and kind of experts in particular fields and just quite pleasant to talk to. And then you have the younger people who are jackasses. Oh. <laughs> and okay. not even smart jackasses. Like, you know the saying that certain people don't realise there's a difference between being a smart ass and being smart? Right. Most of the younger people I've wrote, met who wrote for The Economist or I've, I've talked to on various things are deeply unimpressive people. They are very much not of the calibre of the people who used to be there. And I don't know why that is. I don't know. I, I only I, I met a couple of people that I discovered worked for The Economist. There was a time when it was very hard to know who wrote for The Economist. It wasn't big things. Was There were no by, there was no bylines. And it was kind of almost like a little bit like being a restaurant critic or just a restaurant. You didn't want people necessarily to know who the... 
the economist. Now, within certain circles, probably they knew, oh, he's the he's the guy, he's the Italian, he's the the, the economist guy in Italy or in Rome, or he's the he's the economist guy in Berlin. In little, but it there was a there was a little bit of mystery about it. But who? But then you you'd find out, and they tended to be back when I knew them, slightly older people, and they were interesting, and they had a large cultural hinterland, and slightly quirky maybe, but they they knew their stuff. Uh, the new crowd, I I've I'm long out of those circles, so I don't know. All right, Michael, moving from one British institution to an English institution, Damien yeah. English. Oh, God. oh, Damien, no, he's going to regret that. He's going Damien to Damien English it. comes out today and people are asking him about shops covering over non-essential goods and saying people find it confusing. And Damien English was very quick to put the boot down and say, no, people are not finding this confusing. And then he immediately followed that by saying that clothing is not an essential good, which, while I understood what he meant is not a sentence you ever want to say. Because the image it brings to mind, Michael, is of a Damien English enjoying a degree of freedom that I don't want to see Damien English enjoying. Yeah, you get that... The, the image that occurred to me was that... An image, should we say, meant that if you were sitting in the seat in the doll after Damien English, you'd want your little sanitizer and a, ra- and a damp cloth afterwards. Just before you it sat is, down, it is you know, it is the precursor to let's all get drunk and naked. Yeah, and, and and lick each other, which is the way that COVID is spreading. You know, people are just getting drunk and naked and licking each other. Uh, I th- what? Was, but listen, this is inevitable. If you if you you if you're going to send some poor bastard out to defend a policy which is deeply incoherent and inconsistent and illogical then at least give the chap some talking points that he can just sit there and repeat like an automaton. But trying to, getting the poor bastard to say that clothes, clothing is not essential. Do you know what, like, the, the thing I've, I've loved seeing, people have started sending Damien English uh, photos of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Just being like, no, it's here. <laughs> Oh dear. Maslow's well, hierarchy of needs, by the way, is, is totally pseudoscience. There's yeah, I was about to absolutely say nothing behind it. Very widely believed. If you talk to anybody who has done a degree in social dot dot dot, whatever the hell it is, you could be guaranteed that in the first six minutes of any conversation, Maslow's hierarchy of needs will occur. And I was about to say, well, yeah, I while I approve of anything which is going to make Damien English feel embarrassed and uncomfortable. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, unfortunately, is just basically a very good idea that Maslow had. And if he, I hope he gets money every time it's mentioned. But like singing the happy birthday, he should, he should have the rights for it. But as a piece of science, social science, it's, well. I mean, it, this also strikes me as a point that would have been easier to make during the summer months. I think people yeah. would have been a lot more receptive to their... But it's like... It's it's embarrassing for Damien English, but I don't think it's embarrassing for Damien English because of anything Damien English did. Like he was told, go out there and defend this. Yeah. And so, like, clothing is not listed as an essential good. It is not. But, uh, oh, what's the point? I mean, it, the whole thing is so inconsistent. You, you know what the basic idea is, but when you get into this kind of 
of splitting common seats. They originally had closed off all the clothes, right, Tesco's and Don's, you know. But then now, if you go to Tesco's, you can get you can get socks, and you get pants, and I think you can get uh, bras and undergarments. But you can't buy a jumper or a pair of trousers. Now, if you have a drawers full of socks and pants, but you haven't any trousers because I don't know, the dog ate them, or you, you've gone through a lockdown and you just had one too many essential chocolate cakes and you can't fit into your trousers anymore, I would have said that at that point, trousers kind of become, become essential. But maybe maybe that's the point of the lockdown. We're all supposed to stay in our houses, gradually becoming naked until the time comes that we can, or we uh, order our pants and our, our jumpers online uh, from, I don't know, whoever you buy online trousers and jumpers from. But it's the whole thing. We talked about this before, essential goods. What is an essential good? At any one time, the thing that you need is essential. If you need, I don't know, if you desperately need a, a, a speaker, for example, which I know somebody right now who does, desperately needs a Bluetooth speaker, or else they will go quietly mad. You can't buy that, because I'd imagine that comes under the heading of non-essential. You could buy it online. You could buy it. We can buy everything online. I suppose is that the is that the defence of everything? Buy anything online, but you, chocolate cake is essential. If you can eat something, I think that that's the odd thing. Anything you can eat is essential. Anything you can consume is essential. So on Twitter, lots of people are saying, "So I can buy vodka." What actually I'm saying on what was it? Um, Miriam O'Callaghan. She said, "So I can buy." I can buy vodka, but I can't buy socks for my son. Well, you know what? I suppose there is yeah. a truth. There is a point there. In, at the end of the day, if your son is complaining about not having socks, give him some vodka and he'll cheer up very quickly. That's true. That's true. Well, a limited amount of vodka. It does bring to mind the image of, uh, of English telling a woman not to worry that her children don't have clothing and just to enjoy some gelato. <laughs> You like your gelato, don't well, you? Well, I just, I don't think it should be open. The people there are lovely, but I just, I, I think, I think gelato is outside the reasonable bounds of an essential service. It's not even ice cream, Michael. I, on the other hand, believe that gelato is not only essential, but should be provided by the government to those people who live in areas where gelato is not available to them due to market failure. I think that gelato should be delivered to my door. And I'm not saying every day, Gary. And I'm not even saying some of the more extravagant flavours like passion fruit and mango. But basics, your basic gelatos, your chocolate, your vanilla, your strawberry, your your maybe your your hazelnut, your janduja, your even your pistachio. It's not for me, but I know a lot of people out there do like pistachio. What the fuck is a janduja? Janduja, oh janduja. Janduja it's it's the classic one from Piemonte. Piemonte the, the 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 classic combo is hazelnut and chocolate. Say Nutella, that would be a variation on Janduya. You get these little chocolates up there. Again, it's hazelnuts and chocolate. Uh, and there's a gelateria in a place called Vercelli, which does this Janduya ice cream. Gary, it will change your life. Absolutely, it's just fantastic. And I think that should be available on the medical card. 
I think it would improve people's dispositions to the world enormously if you get a few scoops of that on a Sunday. Oh, I want I want gelato now, and you have gelato. I, yeah, I can I can walk and get. But gelato. no, 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 Gary, you said you'd prefer it was closed. You see, surely rather than this, this annoys me. This thing rather than people looking around and looking for more things to close in order that everybody misery loves company. That's the old saying your granny used to say. Misery loves company, and that's what we're seeing now. Misery loving. Let's close it all. Let's open them all. I would prefer a situation in which more businesses were open. But if we're only going to allow businesses to open that are deemed to be essential, gelato is not fucking essential. And I will die on this hill. But that is something we can argue about after the podcast. Particularly since you sit there comfortably in your gelato area when people outside are living in gelato-free areas. And the best we can do is get haagen I also have a frozen yogurt shop near me. Ah, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> the advantage of an expensive postcode on the on the issue of of closures we were talking before about uh, how the covid numbers have been falling for a while but it's it's too early to say if there's a trend so the lockdown came in well no it's not too early to say there is a trend there is had been saying it was too early to see if that was a sustainable trend there is a trend whether or not the trend continues this is another question whether or not it's a sustainable trend. Yes, yeah, sustainable. And we love sustain. Everything should be sustainable. The lockdown came in a week ago. Eight days. Yeah. We, because of the incubation of COVID-19, we wouldn't expect that to have any impact on the rates of people being diagnosed with COVID for at least another week, maybe slightly beyond that. Yeah, you usually say that you want to wait around 14 days. There's a 14-day lag before you see the these effects. Since the 18th of October, 1,284 cases, yeah. the number has moved down. Now, today, sorry, yesterday it was 866 cases. Yeah. But on the 28th of October, it was down to 667. So what we're generally saying is it goes down, it goes slightly up, but it's, it goes down slightly up again, yeah. but it's trending downward over time. So if you think about that, that is nearly a halving between the 18th and the 28th. Right. Which would indicate that the existing regulations before level five were working. Well, it could do. I mean, I don't want to prop post hoc propter hoc the thing, but yeah, it could do. The North hasn't had quite the same level of shutdown as we have had it and it was going through a similar kind of thing and i read today i don't know if it's true but i read today that the r rate in the north is now under one maybe the maybe it had reached an inflection point and it's coming down on the back of the previous restrictions or maybe it's just doing this anyway and i would also point out the death rate is nowhere near i mean on october the 18th was the highest level of testing that we have seen in this sorry the highest level of positive cases we have seen in this country yes if you go back to april the highest number was 1040 on one day yeah. the debt rate is a fraction of what it was <clears throat> yes but that's what we're seeing across europe isn't it it is yes but i think that's just uh, an important point to make but mostly, to be honest, I just picked this story because I thought it was something light-hearted <coughs> and which I could gently mock Damien English about. Gently, yeah. Well, I can't, you, can't, you can't blame Damien English for this. 
Well, you can blame him for saying that sentence in such a way that it could be clipped and people could say, Damien English said this thing. Doesn't that sound stupid? But that's my point. This, you don't allow these people to go on and just say things. You give them three lines to say. You beat them solidly until they know their lines exactly. And they go on and they say them. When you have a policy which you know and God knows, they must know. If you start to pick at it, it's full of all sorts of incoherencies and inconsistencies. So you could even be radical, Gary, and start at the very beginning and say, listen, we understand that people are going to look at this and see that there are consistencies. However, we have to take a certain broad approach to it. Inevitably, there are going to be small areas where there are going to be inconsistencies. But the broad this is the broad approach that we are taking, and it is the correct approach, which is the advice we've been given, and we believe it's going to work. But recognise it, rather than try and defend the silliness of it, one one other thing, just on the uh, on the impact of COVID nineteen regulations, we yeah. were talking, Michael, before about wider impacts of lockdowns and things like that. That you have to yes, you couldn't just take into account the falls in COVID. You had to look at well, did it cause increases in something? And yes. now we know from the HSE that the COVID nineteen regulations have caused an increase in something, something substantial. Breast cancer screening services. So there are 153,000 women currently awaiting mammograms. Right. They are saying that it could take three years to clear that backlog. Yeah, now that's... So cancer, as a general rule... Yeah, that's a serious thing. You want to get it as early as possible. I think stage zero uh, breast cancer has a five-year survival rate, if it's, if it's caught at that stage and dealt with, of 100%. And then as it expands you see, shall we say, a pretty notable drop in survivability. We should say survival rates and treatment in all sorts of cancers have been massively improved over the last 20 years. But it is absolutely true that we're being told constantly early diagnosis, early, early intervention, early treatment is a massive issue in successful outcomes. And you have to imagine that a three-year backlog is going to have some pretty horrendous outcomes for some women uh, in Ireland. That it, it seems to be unavoidable. It seems to be bluntly clear that a deal of women are going to die of this. Yeah. Um, it was What I found really interesting was the examiner did a story on this. And they, they got a spokesperson from the Marie Keating Foundation. Yes. Which is a foundation all about cancer. That's what they do. Yes. And um, they were saying how happy they were that the, the service had been suspended because of COVID-19. How happy they were that it was coming back. And then they said the decision to suspend the service was the correct one given what was happening. Yeah. I'm, I would just be very curious what the internal maths on that is. Are they assuming it is the best, or did they actually run the figures and kind of go, all right, well, we've this amount of deaths on one hand and this amount of deaths on the other. This is the best option. Yeah, but Gary, to be fair to everybody involved here, we're talking about mathematical models and projections. Uh, Dr. Sam McConkie 
had warned in the middle of September that on the current trends we would be looking at case rates in Dublin of 5,000 a day with death rates of 25 to 50 a day at the, at the end of October. So it depends. If you were to look at Neil, you know, the, like Ferguson's projections for the way it was going to spread in the United Kingdom, if you, do you remember we were told back, back in the day, uh, just before the government did a little bit of a U-turn, well, big U-turn and introduced lockdown, they were talking about 500,000 infections. Um, it, it depends what model. If you're looking at one of those models, well then, you, and you do your numbers, well then probably you're going to come to numbers. You're going to come to the, the, the conclusion that this the lockdown is going to save lives. However, if those numbers are off and substantially off, well then maybe the outcomes and on balance are not going to be positive but negative. So just on a... On a, let me just defend the professor and then undefend the professor. In okay. the next breath. He did say that. He did say about that level of deaths. And, but I think the important phrase there is if the current trajectory continues. Yes. Which may have been an entirely accurate statement to make that if the current trajectory continued, those things would happen. The current trajectory didn't continue. So those things didn't happen. So I don't think you can say he was wrong. Now, moving on from that, what I can say is that I think he was knowingly and grossly misleading and or kind of bullshitting people for the very simple reason that he would have known, looking at other countries, that I can't think of any other country that has seen a spread of the pace per 100,000 people that his uh, trajectory was showing him. And you know in certain things that things just cannot continue to grow exponentially constantly for an infinite amount of time. Yeah. They start to flatten, they tend to move down. So he knows how this works, and yet he still plotted just an exponential growth curve. And when this continues, we'll get to here, while having to know that, that could never actually be reached. So he wasn't wrong. He was just bullshitting you. Well, whether he's bullshitting or whether he was speaking from a precautionary principle that we have to act otherwise, this potentially disastrous outcome could eventuate. I don't. I see lots of people that I have a lot of time for patiently and rather patronisingly explain to people <coughs> who are questioning the usefulness of lockdowns here and other places what the nature of exponential is and how exponential growth works. And... That's okay if it is the case that this thing will actually behave like that. Neither of us know enough about this. And the fact is we see all across the world eminently credentialed people speaking in good faith, having violent disagreements about the nature of the progression of the disease. I mean, there was, do you remember the case of Manaus in Brazil? Uh, Brazil was having a massive problem. He still have, has a problem, even though I run the I mean, the, the worst outcomes were in Peru, but Peru, where Peru had a mass, very severe lockdown, as opposed to Brazil, which had a fairly restricted, fairly low key lockdown. Manaus, but it was announced that the virus was out of control. The government, the governor, basically said, "We are out of control. The system, is, the health system, is basically overwhelmed." 
And then, for no particular reason, the virus at that moment seemed to reach a point of inflection and then declined. Now, whether or not that decline is a long-term or a short-term thing is a whole other issue. They may see, and they may be seeing now, I haven't checked the numbers in the last little while for Brazil. It may be seeing a second wave and maybe going again. But I don't know of anywhere in the world where we've seen this, as you say, this this. A Harrier jet takeoff style exponential growth actually continuing. So, but we, how do you get people to behave, Gary? If you genuinely believe that there is a real serious threat, health threat, and you want people to behave and change and modify their behavior, how do you get them to do that? You may look at the population and say, listen, these people are not doing, you're not going, we can't engage them and talk to them in a reasonable way and explain the dangers and expect them to behave in this very disciplined fashion. The only way to do that successfully is to frighten the bejesus out of them. I think the a problem from the communication side of things for some of the medical personnel has been that they think that they're having a scientific debate or they think they're having a credential debate. Yeah. Actively. Whereas... The nature of scientific communication isn't about evidence, it's about belief. The general public doesn't know enough about really any medical issue. Yeah. Even most people who are experts in medicine will, in relation to any specific area, depending on what you're talking about, have little to no idea of it. They Mm -hmm. believe you because they trust you. It doesn't matter what your evidence is, it matters if people trust you. And if people start thinking that you're lying to them, doesn't matter what evidence you have because once that trust is gone, nothing else matters. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. I said said to you before and others that the problem with these kinds of predictions is we, we're we're back in that village with the boy crying wolf. That if there is a perception that you keep crying wolf, then even if the wolf comes, well, then you're when and of course in the the point of the story is the wolf comes. But the problem is that in this case, it doesn't eat the boy; it eats the village. If in our particular wolf, if we get it wrong. But you, 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 if there's a perception that you are being less than truthful and you're doing this deliberately, you are, you're amplifying the risk in order to produce a result that you don't actually believe the risk is what you described, well, then people lose faith and your your chances of getting to behave in the way is reasonable. But as you say, we don't know. I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience. I, I say I sit down and I watch... The people that did what was it called? The the that, that the declaration the uh, oh, the Great Barrington or yeah the Great Barrington Declaration. You, if you sit down and you listen to these three people, eminently credentialed people, talking about the correct way forward, going move, you know, protecting the vulnerable, allowing people to get back into in, 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 into into their lives, and moving towards some kind of managed herd immunity. You listen to them. And they make eminent sense to me. I listen to them and go, gosh, yeah, that's really sensible. Then the next day I go and I listen to some other highly credentialed person who believes in something approaching zero COVID. And I listen to them and say, gosh, they make really good sense. You know, because I don't know. They know so much more than me about this. Now, I think it might be, it, ultimately, for the layperson, it makes more, it's more useful if you hear these people talking to each other and you get maybe some sense of where the balance lies. But even then, it's a, t- it's, it's a toss-up. One thing I have found particularly interesting about COVID is certain experts have risen to public prominence 
And then when you go and you look into that expert, oftentimes they are a doctor. Yes. They don't specialize in what they're talking about, though. There'll be something like they'll specialize in neurology. Sure. To the public, that is still a medical expert. Yeah. But those are not the same type of expert. Someone who specializes in infectious diseases or in public health or in anything of that nature is a very different thing. I don't think the public has, nor is it presented to the public, enough information to determine if someone should actually be considered an expert due to their uh, academic training or their credentials if they don't really align with what's actually important now. And, I mean, we're seeing the same thing of doctors talking about economics and... I know a little bit about economics and I've seen some of the people who, whatever about medicine, they may be perfectly right on that. They do not know a damn thing about what economics. And then, yeah, you take Professor, is it Professor Levitt? Professor Levitt, who is not a medical doctor. He's not an epidemiologist. He's not an immunologist. However, he's a Nobel Prize and he specializes in complex mathematical modeling. Now, it seems to me that that is actually somebody you could pay attention to because if nothing else, He's able to do a pretty damn good critique on the on the mathematical modelling the epidemiologists are producing. Well, that's the thing. You have people who can have... There are certain areas in which you have expertise you can carry over to other areas. And I think statistics is one of those ones. Yeah. Where if you are trained to a certain level in statistical analysis, there's lots of stuff you can do. But, like, GPs talking about lockdown, for instance. What does a GP know about lockdown? Yeah. They have no training in it. They have absolutely no more as to the day-to-day care of COVID patients or on the appropriate medical approach to that. But that's not what they're talking about. And they're still treated as experts where they are miles outside of their wheelhouse. It's like the the old thing about Nobel Prize winners. You never listen to a Nobel Prize winner talk about anything other than exactly what they won the Nobel Prize in. Well, that was Hayek's point. When Hayek, at the end of his, near the end of his career, he lived. He was a very, very old man when he died. Like a lot of economists, economists tend to live a long time. He eventually did win a Nobel Prize, and he, but he was kind of sceptical about the idea of Nobel prizes in economics anyway. But he, and technically, the economics prize isn't really a Nobel prize. It's a slightly different thing. But he, he said because the problem is that economists are people who have direct influence on public policy. And that if you give a Nobel Prize, it confers an aura of magisterial knowledge upon them. He said, but the reality is that, say Paul Krugman, famously Krugman is a trade economist and he won his, uh, his Nobel Prize for his work on trade economics. Now, say a monetary economist might say, Krugman is great on trade, but he's not good on money. But all you have to say is Nobel Prize winner XYZ says, and you automatically gain a level of respectability for your opinion. And that's, and Hayek said that that was a problem. And I think he was right. That, what is it called, the aura uh, that it confers on people means that they, they're taken far more seriously than they ought to be. God knows. <laughs> what this particular conversation contextually applies to, to how seriously anything you or I should say I really don't know, but I suspect it means that probably that our dear listeners should re- regard us as a negative sum experience. Oh, we've never claimed expertise. 
I suppose. I, I, suppose think, I, I think we're pretty open about this is what we've looked at. This is what we think could be entirely wrong. With the voice of the people, the lament. Basic grasp of Bayesian statistics. <laughs> and that, as with anything else, will get us true. I couldn't even spell Bayesian. <laughs> I think there's a Y, but I'm not sure. Uh, yes, there is. There's also an E. It's the E that'll trick you. Yeah. Anyway, at the end of the day, the only thing that we can say is that there is a genuine, if there is a, if a three-year three year backlog, all of this is going to be... Uh, it's going to be very bad news for, for for women and for families around Ireland. Absolutely inconsequential to politicians for the most part. And that is you know, I, I was I was thinking that we should, the EVI should write a policy saying we want to not just support private hospitals, but privatise every public hospital in the country just to see who it would anger. I just, I'd like to have someone come out and defend the HSE. Like, you, you want to privatise this? And like, Yes, less people will die. Yeah, but yeah, is that really what you you care about in a health health system? Now, come on, Gary. Um, older viewers may remember the wonderful comedy program Yes Minister, and in that there was one episode which was dedicated to a hospital, which was finished, built, supplied with all of the correct machinery and all of the ancillary staff. So all of the shall we say, the cleaning staff, the typing pool, all the administrators. However, there were no patients. And it was observed that it, patients would only get in the way of its proper functioning. You know, and I think that there's an element of that at times in the administration of health systems, and public health systems. That, you know, look, it's, it's an excellent system. We have the statistics to prove it. Yes, maybe people are dying that shouldn't be dying. People are getting are living in pain and in sickness they shouldn't be. But other than that, the system works really well. Anyway, God, we've gone cheerful again. Well, you know, it's another bright day, Michael. Speaking of, well, not bright days, but uh, before we finish, I suppose we should at least make reference to the rather horrific uh, incident in Nice in France, where this, uh, not uh, this day, yesterday morning, uh, Three people, uh, including the sacristan, who had gone to the Basilica in Nice to attend First Mass. Uh, one woman was, I think in the words of one report, virtually decapitated. The sacristan had his throat cut. One other woman was stabbed several times, managed to escape to his cafe, but later died of her wounds. France, it's, uh, it's, France seems to be getting it. And badly, it's uh, s several people commenting on social media. It's a, it's a strange world where Macron has become the leader of the free world. The, uh, again, rather sadly, one of the most interesting things about the story was the reporting of the story. Did you see the New York Times first reaction? Oh, uh, French Muslims don't know what their place in France is. That was the general gist of it. I the, yeah, the, the first story was Muslims wonder about their place in France. As uh, Razib Khan commented uh, on Twitter, said, mm, if there was a wave of decapitations in the United States due to religious feelings, we would be talking about anything else. Mm. It's, uh, it does, France does seem to be suffering from rather a spate of random decapitations. Also, and I said, God, love us. Um, 
it's also for the open borders folk it a little bit of a problem here uh, with the man who is believed to have carried out these murders yes a recent migrant who had italian red cross documents mm-hmm. uh he went to an italian island which i hear was very lovely Lampedusa, it is absolutely... Why you'd leave it in September, I do not know. He arrived there by a migrant boat. I love this migrant boat. It's like there's a, there's a ferry across from Libya, Libya you just get. You arrive in Lampedusa. So he arrived on one of these migrant boats into Lampedusa last month. And then got into France on uh, this Red Cross document. He was shot by police. Which i surprised that wasn't the first thing in the report. And is in a critical condition as we speak. But it doesn't... As I say, it's not good news for the open border people. No, no, it's um, it, it may not be bad news either. I think it will depend on how this is covered. It's the standard thing. If people legitimately and honestly deal with people's concerns, those concerns tend to be ameliorated. Yes. Whereas if you simply refuse to discuss things, well, then people start getting quite you know, heated up about that. And that has been traditionally the problem with these things. We refuse to discuss it, and if there are any lessons we should take from it, and instead people just slink off to other people, less reputable people, who are willing to say pretty much anything. That's the irony, isn't it? That the reason we don't have these discussions is because in some way, having this discussion will be giving succour to the racists and to the bigots and to the far right. But by not having these discussions, we end up actually allowing people to migrate precisely to those people who are very willing to give an explanation to what's happening. And they will frame that explanation in ways that we don't like. But we can't blame anybody about ourselves if we refuse to have the conversation in the first place. Well, the problem there is that it's, that is an effective strategy at the very start, because then you can deny those people oxygen. The problem comes that after a period of time, when they've continued to grow, they're then of such a size that you ignoring them is not hurting them as such. No. It's actually just feeding them at that point. And I think that uh, people haven't realised that in lots of Europe that point has been reached. In fact, we're way past that point. And now you actually start needing to talk. When you look at conversations that we're having in this country, and so many people are so worried about the alt-right and the far-right and they're going to undermine the institution of the state. When, as we have said before, the, the, the far-right in Ireland is basically a man and a boy. In comparison to the rest of Europe, the far-right here is doing very badly indeed. But that isn't to say, Gary, that it couldn't do better. And I think that, oh, well, is, is there any point to say we could learn from the experience of others, but that's such a stupid, yeah. vapid hope to have. We have ne- we've never done it before. Why should we start to do it now? There is the interesting argument that the presence of Sinn Féin has stopped the creation of any kind of populist movement, be that far right or far left, because they naturally gravitate to Sinn Féin. I yeah. find that interesting because if that argument is correct, as Sinn Féin is becoming more of a sort of socially liberal, kind of respectable party, yeah, they will lose that cachet. It's also, Sinn Féin are just about the only example I can think of, of a, shall we say, inverted commas, respectable left-wing party that is also, what you'd have to say, nationalist. 
in Ireland we use the phrase Republican because we distinguish between Republicans and Nationalists in that non-unionist tradition. But they, but they espouse nationalism. Now, pretty well across the world, the, the Orthodox left, the Orthodox market, has always rejected nationalism as being a pernicious artifact of the right because it is anti-internationalist and it's anti it's anti-proletarian because it it, it it postpones the the interest that the party should have in ameliorating the, the conditions of the working class and rather gets caught up in the notion of the nation and that's a bad thing. Now, I would, in the past, this kind of nationalist position was defended as being, instead of being actually nationalist, it was it would have been characterized as an anti-colonialist position. So say Basques, ETA in the Basque country in Spain, the IRA here and other groups, they would, the PLO, they weren't actually nationalist groups, but rather they were anti-colonialist groups. Anti-colonialism is good, whereas nationalism is bad. But you're right, I think that the longer that it, it be, the longer it goes on and becomes more normalized, and maybe there's a perception that it, it's losing that uh, particularist national edge to it, then yeah, these things will only go so far. Again, particularly if they refuse to have a conversation, if they refuse to talk about it. I will also because, say that uh, Ogre Sinn Féin. Yeah, yeah, I've met, good stuff. I've met members of Ogre Sinn Féin who have actually like, had quite pleasant conversations. I don't agree with them on anything. No. But like, just grand conversation. The people who run their social media accounts are complete fucking idiots. yeah. Are you referring to, for example, references to far-right conferences in the United States? Well, that's, that's yes, that is the recent thing that uh, I saw. Wasn't, uh, wasn't terribly fond of that one. But they're just, like, it's like a child throwing a tantrum after maybe eating half a pot of glue. <laughs> and he it thinks it's very impressive, but you're just like, no one cares. Go away. Mammy says, I'm good-looking. I'm lovely. And you should go out with me. Anyway. Oh, and then you have all the, the like the, the LARPing of anti-fascism from people who are like 16. And it's just like, please. Well, you know, we live in a world where I discovered today, I don't know if many of the listeners will be aware of a man called Tucker Carlson, but Tucker Carlson is a, a presenter on Fox News. He's a newsman. And obviously Fox News is very bad. Therefore, Tucker Carlson pretty bad. Terrible with post. Terrible, terrible. But he uh, he had a couple of newscasts recently, which were the largest ever had the, the largest ever audience of any cable news uh, show. And uh, somebody quoted on Twitter, and <laughs> one of the respondents, I think, it was a, a person of the left here, referred to Tucker Carlson as a literal, your uh, somebody who is literally a neo-Nazi. Now, Tucker Carlson is many things, Gary. He ain't no neo-Nazi. And when your political vocabulary has become so diminished as to divide the world into... Tucker Carlson and everybody on that side is being neo-Nazis, then I think you're kind of running into trouble. It It does also create a point when you're like... You run into like... Maybe like not a neo-Nazi, but someone who's verging into that like space. Yeah. They're like, what's he? And you're like, he's a neo-Nazi. But those two oh. people are clearly different. Is he like a super neo-Nazi? Has he gone super <laughs> sane? Like, what's <laughs> happening here? You just don't have the vocabulary to explain it because you talk like a child. 
because you understand basically nothing about your political opponents. Well, also you've no really understood. You've no understanding. You've no desire to understand. You know the old. There's no. Um, wasn't a tradition, but practice amongst uh, uh, Jewish scholars, of st students of the Talmud, that if you were debating your, uh, which would normally, that's the way you study Talmud yourself, and somebody on the other side of the desk, you'd have the book in front of you, you'd turn the book, and they would have turned the book back to you as you debate some article from it. One of the things, the first things you're required to do is to define the position of your, your opponent to such, in such a way that your opponent agrees that how you're how you're characterizing his position is an accurate exposition of what he believes. Now, I think that would be a very, very good and very useful now, trick for these people to try and do. Michael, I'm going to preface this by saying that I know many people in Sinn Féin that this doesn't apply to. Yes. But I just have a feeling, Michael, that there aren't a lot of people inside Ogre Sinn Féin reading Torahs, or who would be comfortable with anyone near them reading a Torah. Yeah, they're not what you'd call Semitophiles, I would say. That is fairly true. They're not mad on the old Talmudic Torah tradition, or indeed those people. They're not mad on those people who are part of the Talmudic or the Torah tradition. That, that is true. Let's face it, the Kefia is part of the uniform if you're in that space, that political space. But, you know, I still think, you know, as a practice, I think it's a practice we could re recommend, and not just to members of Ogre, to all of us, because we know, from, we, we know, <laughs> I love it when we say that, I say, we know from studies done by reputable social scientists that one of the, that when you test people on their understanding of the, uh, of the, 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 the morals of the beliefs or the values of somebody who has different political views for them, that uh, very often they get it badly wrong. No, and of course we like to say this because when these studies have been done, and Jonathan Haidt talks about this, conservatives tend to be better at correctly characterizing the, the values of people, uh, of their particular opponents, than progressives are about people on the right. It's not terribly surprising, though. I mean, the culture is more progressive. It is more in that direction. So you're, you grow up in it. So you hear more about it. You're more educated about what it is, I suppose. And also, let's face it, the empirical fact is also conservatives are just nicer people and therefore more willing to prescribe positive attitudes to other people. And that's a fact. You can trust Michael on that. Yeah, you can take that. You can take that to the bank. He was very nearly a doctor. I considered being a doctor, not of medicine, but of something else. But it seemed like oh, an awful is, lot of work. The, of course, you—that was the type of doctor you wanted to be. People <laughs> are not doctors, Michael. They're merely physicians. This is true. This is true. There are not many doctors in there. Anyway, I think it's time to draw a veil over this particular corpse and to pronounce it dead. We shall return. Um, like the Lord after Friday on Sunday and where she shall uh, engage in our usual fun Sunday miscellany of all the good things that are happening in the world and we shall take pleasure with them and possibly Gary will be sitting there eating gelato while we do so because he's that kind of a bastard. I am going to warn the listener ahead of time that while we may return on Sunday it is going to be significantly 
less impressive than the resurrection of Christ. At least 15% less impressive. At least 15%. And perhaps with fewer long-term impacts on world history. Well, I mean, did Jesus have a smoke machine, Michael? <laughs> did Jesus need a smoke machine? Could God create a smoke machine so large that he himself could not use it? No, stop. <laughs> Just say goodbye to... You study to be a priest. What's the answer? The answer is the question is... The question is incorrect. All the best. Bye-bye.